How would I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks clearly and powerfully to us in your word and that you have spoken most clearly and most powerfully in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you especially for your power to work in his life of perfect obedience, in his death by which he bore our sins and in his mighty resurrection by which you have opened up new life to us. And we pray, Father, as we read your word in 1 Corinthians 15 together this morning that you would speak to us. Please quieten our hearts, give us ears that are ready to hear and hearts that are ready to trust you and obey. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible open, it'd be good to keep it there at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 19. There's also a little outline which may help just to see where we're headed. I want to start by telling you about a young man who I know, let's call him Dave, who's 17 years old. He attended a church school but he had no personal faith until his friends invited him to youth group. As he listened to the youth group leaders teach from the Bible, he became convicted of his sin and his brokenness before God and his need for forgiveness. You see, David had been aware for a number of years of a struggle that he had with homosexual desires, which he'd acted out on a few times. And when he opened up to one of the youth leaders about this, the questions that he was asking were questions like this. Is there any possibility that God can forgive my sin and take away my guilt and set me free from this struggle? Is there any hope of salvation for me? That's what he was asking. As a man I know in his late 50s, let's call him Phil. He's a Christian man, he's got a Christian wife, they have three believing kids and after 25 years of marriage, two years ago, his wife up and left him for another man. He had absolutely no idea. His first reaction was anger, which then gave way to a deep grief. It wasn't just that he'd been betrayed so horrendously. His wife's departure also unearthed him a whole raft of faults in his own character. It turned the spotlight back on him. His workaholism and his arrogance and his insensitivity, which didn't excuse his wife's actions, but he began to understand why she'd left. And he was asking the same kind of questions. Is there any hope that God can heal me of this hurt? and forgive me for my own sin? Is there any chance at this stage in my life that God might be able to transform me and make me the kind of man that he designed me to be? Is there any hope of salvation for me? That's the question he was asking. There's a woman in her 80s, let's call her Judith, a Christian woman who trusted Jesus all of her life. She doesn't remember a day when she didn't know God's love. But now her health is giving way and even though her mind is still lucid, her body's worn out. She knows she hasn't got much time left. And for the first time in her life, she's begun to doubt. The questions she's asking are these. Has God really forgiven me? Am I really right with him? Can I really trust the promise of eternal life beyond the grave? The question she's asking is the same one. Is there any hope of salvation for me? Those three people I know, different walks of life, different stages of life, they're not alone, are they? They're the questions we're all asking in one form or another at different points in our lives. Can I find forgiveness? Can I find freedom from this struggle? Is there any hope for me beyond the grave? Is there any hope of salvation for me? They're real questions, aren't they? Maybe they're some of the questions that you've been asking yourself. And the answer that God has for us here in 1 Corinthians 15 is a real answer to those real questions. 
And it's a resounding yes, and yes, and yes. In the Gospel, in Jesus, by his death and resurrection, God gives us hope. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Real, solid, substantial hope. Hope of salvation. You might be disappointed to hear that I've got absolutely nothing new to say this morning. Like Paul, I just want to remind you of the Gospel which you have received, on which I take it, most if not all of you, have taken your stand. And I want to encourage you to hold firmly to him to the end, to look to salvation nowhere else but in Jesus. There's three points you can see on the outline. We're going to spend most time in the first one uh, and then a little bit less on the others. God gives us hope in the gospel. So hold on to the gospel of hope and hold out the gospel of hope to all who need to hear it. Paul begins, if you've got your Bible there, in chapter 15, verse 1, by saying this, Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are being saved. This isn't the first time the Corinthians have heard the gospel. Paul's writing to them from Ephesus, probably around AD 55, two or three years after he spent 18 months in the city of Corinth, and he's writing back to the believers there to remind them of what he preached to them while he was with them. The Corinthians had received, he says, the gospel. They've taken their stand upon it, but now they're in danger of losing their grip on the truths by which God was saving them. And so Paul reminds them of this gospel that he preached. Verse 3, for I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas and then to the twelve. This right here is one of the very earliest Christian statements of faith. Paul received it, he says, we're not sure exactly when, but most likely from the apostles in Jerusalem, not long after Paul himself was saved when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Within years of Jesus' death and resurrection, one of the very earliest statements of the Christian faith, statements of the Christian gospel. And I want you to notice four things here in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 5. First, notice that the Gospel is all about Jesus. There are four verbs in those couple of verses. I didn't learn about verbs and nouns when I was at school, but now my little girl in year one, the education system's improved. She can tell me about verbs, so hopefully you know about verbs. Verbs are doing words, right? There are four doing words uh, in these few verses. And Christ is the subject of all of them. He's doing the action. Christ died, or at least he's receiving the action. Christ was buried... Christ was raised and Christ appeared. You see, the Gospel is all about Jesus, about what God has done in and through his Son to reconcile guilty sinners to himself and to save his lost world. I used to have the great privilege of teaching Scripture uh, in a couple of different high schools and every year when I began with the Year 10 boys, I'd ask them this question. Maybe you can think about what your answer would be. I'd ask them, what is the Christian faith all about in a sentence? Ten words or less. They'd come up with stuff like being a good person. It's about how to be spiritual, isn't it, sir? Something about going to church. Isn't it about the Ten Commandments? Is that right? It's about God and stuff, isn't it? (laughs) They didn't get it, did they? The Christian faith is not first and foremost about how to be good. It's not first and foremost a system of personal morality. True, the Bible has 
a great deal to say about how we should live. In the biblical command to love the Lord your God with every fibre of your being and to love your neighbour as yourself gives us a moral vision that is unparalleled in any one of the other major world religions or in any other non-Christian, non-religious world view. But the Christian faith is not first and foremost about how to be good. It's also not first and foremost a philosophy or a path of personal spirituality. There is, of course, in the Bible great philosophical depth and a fully orbed worldview. In Christ, Paul says in Colossians, are hidden all the mysteries of wisdom and knowledge. But the Christian faith is not first and foremost a set of philosophical ideas or a list of instructions about how to be spiritual. The Christian faith is also not first and foremost a blueprint for human society or politics. Jesus' teaching about forgiveness does, yes, provide the best basis for human community. The social ethic that's there in the law in the Old Testament and the developed by the Apostles in the New Testament is the foundation for the best of the world's political systems and legal systems. But the Christian faith is not first and foremost about the church or about society. It's not first and foremost about any of those things. At its heart, it's an announcement of news, of good news. That's what gospel means. And that news concerns a person and that person is Jesus. Sundar Singh, the 19th century Indian convert from Sikhism to Christianity, who did so much to spread the gospel in his native India, put it well. He was once asked what particular principle or doctrine he'd found in Christianity that led him to convert. What kind of teaching did you find there, they asked him, that made Christianity stand out from all the others? What appealed to him about the Christian faith above and beyond the smorgasbord of religious options available to him in India? His answer was simply this. The particular thing I have found, he said, is Christ. You see, the Gospel is all about Jesus. And in particular, the Gospel announces the real achievement of Jesus' death and resurrection. Have a look again at verses 3 and 4. Christ died for sins and he was buried. He was raised on the third day and he appeared. Jesus died for our sins, Paul says. His death on the cross is not merely some moving story about the power of sacrifice or the nature of love. It was a real death for real sin. The Gospel story is not some fairy tale like the Three Little Pigs or Henny Penny designed to teach us how to live. It's not a morality tale. No, it's about real events in real time and real space. Jesus cried real tears. He shed real blood. He was nailed to a real cross. He was buried in a real tomb. And if you'd been there on the 14th of Nisan in AD 33, uh, at least according to our dating system, AD 33, you'd have seen it. Many people did. You see the reality of that death in the fact that he was buried. Notice Paul emphasises that. It's not just that he died for sins, he was buried. At the end of the day, when Jesus was taken down from the cross, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus together took Jesus' broken body Two of them covered it in spices and wrapped it in strips of linen and laid it in Joseph's own unused rock tomb. They were just doing what many faithful Jews did in the first century. When somebody died, you'd anoint their body, you'd wrap them up in linen, you'd put them in a tomb and you'd leave the body there and you'd wait for the flesh to rot. 40, 60, 70 days, however long it took, until the flesh had rotted away and then you'd go back and you'd collect the bones out of the tomb and you put them in a bone box, an ossuary, we found hundreds of these all over the place in Jerusalem, and you take that ossuary with the person's bones and you put them on the Mount of Olives 
And he put them on the Mount of Olives, trusting in God's promise through the prophets that at the end he would come and raise the dead. You put the person there, you put their bones there, waiting for God to come and raise the dead at the end, as he'd promised. And so Jesus was laid in the tomb. His lifeless body was sealed in by a large boulder, rolled across the entry so that no one could get in. The Gospel announces, you see, that Jesus died and that he was buried. The death was real and the burial proves it. And that matters because it shows us that he really bore the consequences for real sin. He really suffered God's right judgement against our sin in our place. His death was no sham. It's not just some mere story. He really died for real sin. But of course, Jesus not only died for our sins, he was also raised and he appeared. His flesh didn't rot. His body saw no corruption. God, his father, did not abandon his chosen one to decay. And so early on the Sunday morning, you know the story, don't you? The women came to the tomb carrying more spices to complete the anointing of his body that had been hurriedly carried out on the Friday evening before. But when they came to the tomb, they found that the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty and the body was missing. You see, they came to prepare Jesus' body to wait for his flesh to rot so they could collect his bones and put them in a box and place them on the Mount of Olives to wait for the great and final day that God had promised to the prophets that God would come and raise the dead and they came to the tomb and they found out that they were too late because God had already come and raised him from the dead. The future had burst into the present for Jesus. And like Jesus' death, his resurrection is not merely a comforting story about the reality of the afterlife. No, he was really raised in time and space with a seeable, touchable body. His appearances prove it. Do you notice Paul says, not just that he died, also he was buried. Not just that he was raised, also he appeared. He appeared to keep us and then to the 12, verse 5. He appeared to 500 of the brothers at one time, verse 6. He appeared to James, verse 7. And he appeared, last of all, Paul says, to me, verse 8. You see, Jesus died and he was buried. He was raised and he appeared. People touched him and saw him. They ate breakfast with him on the beach. He was not some ghost. He was really raised. The resurrection does not mean that Jesus' disciples had a sense that he was still significant, that he lived on in their memories and imaginations, uh, even though he really was still dead. It's not like when people say Elvis lives. You know, <laughs> it's not some wish fulfilment. Resurrection does not mean that Jesus' spirit lived on in some non-material sense. It's not a way of saying he's in heaven with God or something like that. That's not what resurrection means. Resurrection doesn't even mean that God gave Jesus a new body different from the one that he had before. No, resurrection in the Bible means one thing and one thing only. It means that Jesus was restored to life in his body, in the same body in which he died. That's why when he appeared to the disciples in Luke chapter 24, he could show them his wounds and in the hand, in his arm, in his hands, and in his feet, and in his side. It's why they could recognise him. Sometimes they didn't, but we're told they were kept from recognising him on those occasions. It wasn't because he was unrecognisable; it was because they were kept from recognising him. He was raised in a body 
in the same body that he had before he died. And yet, a transformed body. Now, you read through those accounts in Luke 24 and John 21 uh, and Matthew 28 and you see that it's very clearly the same Jesus who appears to his disciples, who eats with them, who shares with them, who walks with them, who teaches them, who breaks bread with them uh, and yet in this body he's able to ascend to heaven. In this body he's able to appear in a room where the doors are locked. It's still a physical body that you can touch and see uh, and yet it's a transformed physical body. It's important to notice there that there's a crucial difference between the resurrection of Jesus and the other resurrection stories that we have in the scriptures. When you think about the other resurrections in the Bible, there's actually quite a few of them when you start thinking about it. There's uh, the widow of Zarephath, her son, who was raised by Elijah in 1 Kings 17. The son of the Shunammite woman who was raised by Elisha in 2 Kings 4. Jesus himself, of course, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and the widow's son at Nain and Lazarus in John 11. But each of those resurrections are different from Jesus' resurrection. Each of those resurrections were a restoration to the same kind of life. If you think of life here and death there, Jairus, Lazarus, the widow's son at Nain, they go into death and Jesus brings them back out of death into the same kind of life. Uh, we're not given all the details, but you've got to assume that Lazarus, after he came back to life again, got sick again. He fought with his sisters again. <laughs> and poor bloke is one of a very select club of people in the Bible who died again. He died twice. <laughs> because he was raised, he was brought back into the same kind of life. Life's here, death there, he came back here, and so he was destined to go back there. But Jesus' resurrection is not like that. He went into death and through death and out the other side into a whole new kind of life in the same body that he had before but transformed in a resurrected body, the kind of resurrected body that all of us will bear at the end. We're going to talk about that tomorrow morning. You see, his resurrection was the reality to which those other resurrections were pointing, the bright light of which they were the mere shadows. His resurrection was nothing less than the beginning of the resurrection of the final day. We're going to talk about that a little bit later this morning. And so the Gospel announces that Jesus was raised and that he appeared and his appearances underscore the fact that the resurrection was real. He really overcame the power of sin and death. Unlike every other human being who has ever lived, he went into death and through death and out the other side. Unlike the rest of us, he is now utterly immune from sin and completely free from death. He's conquered the grave. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 9, Christ has been raised from the dead never to die again. And so he can give salvation to the rest of us when we trust in him. No one compares to Jesus, do they? A Muslim convert to Christianity was once asked why he decided to follow Jesus. And he said, well, when you come to a fork in the road and you look down the two possible paths you can go. He's talking about Islam and Christian faith. He says, when you look down the two possible paths, you can go and you see that down the end of one is a dead man and down the end of the other is a man who's been raised from the dead. 
there's really no choice. The choice is easy. You see, the gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel announces Jesus' real achievement. It announces that he really bore our sin in his death on the cross, that he really defeated death by rising from the grave. And all of that happened according to the scriptures. Point three there. Look again at verses three and four. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You ask yourself, which scriptures? Uh, You might be able to point to a couple. Uh, Jesus dying for sins. The language there echoes the language about the servant of the Lord uh, bearing the iniquity of many in Isaiah 53. There might be some echoes there. The reference to resurrection on the third day may echo Hosea 6, 2 and Jonah 1, 17 where there's a dramatic reversal of fortunes on the third day. But I think what Paul is saying here is that it's deeper than that. It's more than that. It's not just that there's a couple of proof texts uh, that predicted Jesus' death and resurrection. More than that, he's saying the whole story of the Bible reaches its climax in him. God's great plan of salvation, the plan that God concocted before the creation of the world and patiently worked out through the long centuries before Christ, that plan is now coming true in Jesus and so he's died and he's been raised according to the scriptures. He's the true Adam who was obedient, unlike Adam, even to the point of death. And so offered to God the obedience that we were meant to give but never did. He's the fulfilment of the scriptures beginning with Adam because he did what Adam was meant to do. He's the true Israel who as the suffering servant entered into Israel's exile and suffered the curse for Israel's disobedience and in his resurrection has thought about the promised restoration that's there in the prophets in Ezekiel 37 and elsewhere. He's the Passover lamb in whose death He offered the perfect unblemished sacrifice by which we're set free. He's the great high priest who offered himself on the altar for our sins. He's the great and final king, the Messiah, who's been installed by his resurrection to the right hand of God to rule over the nations. You see how all of this comes together in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so it's according to the scriptures. The whole thing has been pointing to this moment. His death and resurrection are according to the scriptures, not merely in the narrow sense that they fulfil a handful of proof texts, but in the much deeper and richer sense that God's whole plan to save the world reaches its climax in him. And that's why the gospel delivers the hope of salvation. Notice verse 2, Paul writes to the Corinthians, by this gospel you are being saved. That's the ESV. Other translations may have it a little bit differently, but the ESV's got it well here. You are being saved. Let me ask you a question. Are you saved? I hope if your trust is in Jesus, you can say yes. Uh, Perhaps you're here and somebody's invited you along and you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Maybe this is the weekend where God is speaking into your life and calling you to put your trust in him to be saved. But I'm guessing for most of us we can say, yes, I do trust in him. Uh, And so you can answer, yes, I am saved. Let me ask you another question. Are you being saved? Yes, absolutely. Is God's work in your life complete? No way. You are being saved. Will you be saved? Yes, you will be saved. You see, God's plan to save us is past, present, and future. 
And that's why here Paul can say, say, by the gospel you are being saved. You see, salvation is not just something that happens when you put your trust in Jesus for the first time. It's bigger than that. It's God's ongoing work in our lives by the gospel to save us from sin and all of its effects in our lives, including, at the end, even death. Salvation is past and present and future. Let me catch that out a little bit. Here's the past. In Christ we've been set free from the penalty of sin. We're forgiven because he died for our sins in our place, bearing the penalty that we deserve. We have been saved in that sense. That's the past. But there's more, of course, isn't there? In Christ we're also being set free from the power of sin. We're being transformed by his spirit to be like Jesus as we put sin to death and live the new life. We are being saved. That's the present. But there's still more, isn't there? In Christ, God promises to set us free from the presence of sin. We'll be glorified when by his spirit he raises us from the dead. We will be saved from sin and even from death. That's the future. Here's the point. All of that God is achieving by the gospel. Verse 2, by this gospel, Paul says to the Corinthians, you are being saved. And that's why Paul can say in verse 3 that the gospel is of first importance. It matters most. It's by the gospel, by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection announced in the gospel, that you are being saved. So we've got to hold on to the gospel, don't we? And we've got to hold it out to those who desperately need to hear it. Let me talk about both of those briefly for a few minutes. We've got to hold on to the gospel of hope. In 1995, a few friends and I were down uh, on the beach in Gerringong and we saw the warning signs, do not swim, said, uh, extreme rip. But we were 18, we were invincible and besides there were girls on the beach that we wanted to impress uh, and so in we went. Uh, it wasn't long before we were being dragged and I... I could map myself against the beach, watch myself being pulled down the beach quite rapidly towards the rocks uh, at the end. The girls we wanted to impress called the lifeguard (laughs) who braved the surf and came out to us in their boat and I distinctly remember the moment when the bloke put his hand out to me like this and I was in the water and there I am, he's in the boat. Now the moment like that, you've got a a choice, don't you? Two options. Either you can persist in your arrogance and your pride, no, I'll be right, mate, thanks, (laughs) and keep trying to swim against the rip. Or you can admit your helplessness and grab on. The Corinthians were in danger of losing their grip on the gospel. They'd latched onto Christ, but now they're in danger of letting go. There are even some of them who are denying the resurrection. You'll see that later on in this passage. And so Paul warns them, verse 2, he says, By this gospel you are being saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you believed in vain. So I've got to ask you, brothers and sisters, are you holding on to Christ? Are you clinging to the one and only lifeline that God has offered? Because it's by the gospel that you'll be saved. There's a lot of different ways we can lose the gospel, aren't there? Let me just explore three of them. We can lose the gospel when we sideline Jesus. It seems almost impossible, doesn't it, that people who want to be Christians could uh, sideline Jesus, after whom Christianity is named. But church history is littered with examples of people sidelining Jesus and yet still wanting to be Christian in some sense. I used to teach be a high school teacher and uh, one of the schools that I taught at was a church school uh, founded 
a couple of centuries, or a century and a half ago, by one of the major churches. And it had done just that. As you walk down the main entryway to the church, you pass the great auditorium, uh, where the whole school can gather for assemblies and that kind of thing. And on the entrance to that auditorium is a plaque. It says, this auditorium dedicated to the glory of God in the hope that the boys educated here might grow in the knowledge and love of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Fantastic. You keep walking down the uh, pathway uh, at the main entrance to the school and you come next to that auditorium to a multi-faith chapel. And you walk into the multi-faith chapel and around the walls of the chapel there's a frieze, uh, wood, with names carved into the wood. It was a boys' school, so they're all names of men. Men who've inspired humanity to greatness, we were told. And Einstein was up there, and the Buddha was up there, and Alexander the Great was up there. It was a Methodist school, so Wesley was up there. And Schopenhauer was up there, and Jesus was up there. Just one of the many. And as soon as you walk into that chapel, you know that these people have lost the gospel. And when you look at the dates on the plaques at the front of those two buildings, the auditorium was dedicated in 1965 and the multi-faith chapel was built in 1985. In 20 years, that school had lost the gospel. We lose the gospel when we sideline Jesus. Hold on to him. Don't take him for granted. Never let go. We also lose the gospel when we preach the cross of Christ without the resurrection. It's true and interesting, isn't it, that earlier in this same letter, uh, you might know it, very famous passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says to the Corinthians, I resolved when I was among you to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. It's almost like he's saying there it's all about the cross. But this emphasis on the cross at the beginning of the letter is, I think, deliberately balanced by an equal emphasis on the resurrection at the end of the letter. It's almost like Paul is saying, everything I've got to say to you guys, church at Corinth, is bookended between Jesus' death at the beginning and Jesus' resurrection. In fact, I've got nothing else to say to you except that Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And everything else fits within that framework. Everything else flows from that centre. All of his teaching is encompassed within Christ's death and resurrection. And so we lose the gospel if we preach the cross of Christ, if we hold on to the cross of Christ without the resurrection. That's the Christianity I grew up with. I'm sure the fault was in me, not in those who were trying to teach me. But I, I heard a lot uh, when I was growing up. Jesus died for our sins. The cross is at the centre. Uh, trust in Jesus who died for you. And I heard very little about the resurrection. I knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead but I, I, nothing much was made of it. At best it was some kind of, you know, the most amazing of miracles or the proof that Jesus was God or something like that but nothing was made of its significance. And so what mattered more, much more I thought, was that Jesus died for my sin. The problem is that if all you've got uh, to say to ourselves and if all we've got to say to others is that Jesus died for our sins, it's hard to see how the gospel applies to the Christian life beyond the moment when you first come to believe or beyond the moment when you struggle with sin. If we minimise the resurrection, at best we end up with a truncated gospel that can speak of forgiveness of sins but not of redemption from slavery to sin. That can speak of a new start but not of a final victory over sin. 
At best, we end up with a gospel that's relevant for the start of the Christian life, but not so much for the middle or the end. And that's at best if we minimise the resurrection. At worst, if we deny the resurrection, we end up with no gospel at all. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. It's that significant. And so is your faith. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. You see, the problem with a resurrection-free gospel is that it empties the cross of its power. The cross without resurrection ultimately leaves us in sin. It leaves us with a would-be saviour who joined us in our fallen state and bore our sin and was crushed by it. Who wasn't able to find a way out. The great reformer John Calvin puts this well. He says, The cross of Christ only triumphs in the breath of believers over the devil and the flesh, over sin and sinners, when their eyes are directed to the power of his resurrection. But praise God, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead and so he grants forgiveness and new life and complete salvation, past, present and future to all who put their trust in him. We lose the gospel when we sideline Jesus. We lose the gospel when we preach the cross without the resurrection. We also lose the gospel when we focus on what we must do rather than on what God has done. Of course, there's an important place for calling each other to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received. But we do that only and always in the context of what God has done in Christ and what God is doing by his spirit, graciously working out his salvation in us. Paul's our model here. Have a look at verse 10. He says, The grace of God did not come to me in vain, but I worked harder than all of them. But then he's careful to add, And yet not I, but the grace of God of God that was with me. Having gone out into the surf that day on the beach at Jeringong, I was already a fool. We were 18, we were foolish. But I would have been even more of a fool if, having been dragged back onto the beach, dumped on the sand in front of the girls that we were trying to impress, if we'd started boasting about what a great job we'd done at holding on to the lifeguard's hand. You see, it's not about what we do, but about him and what he has done and what he is doing in us by his spirit. God's power for salvation, past and present and future, is not found in trying harder, but in trusting Jesus. It's not found in pulling your socks up in self-improvement or self-discipline. It's found in the gospel. By the gospel you are being saved. So, brothers and sisters, hold on to the gospel. And if you're holding on to the gospel you'll also be ready to hold it out as well. This gospel message is the only message by which guilty sinners can be washed clean. It's the only message by which people struggling with sin, believers struggling with sin, can find strength. It's the only message by which those who are doubting can be given hope in the face of death. It's a message that gives us hope for salvation from sin and its effects past present and future. Certainly that was Paul's response. Having been gripped by the gospel of grace, he gave his life to proclaiming it. Look at verse 11. Whether then it's I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. 
the temptation here to narrow this down too much. We see Paul's example of preaching the gospel. We hear the charge to proclaim the gospel and we rush out and we learn a gospel tract. We do an evangelism course. Uh, so we've got a, a gospel presentation up our sleeve and we can tick that box. I've got the gospel. I'm ready to hold it out. Uh, and those are great things to do. Of course, learn a tract. Do an evangelism course. But the gospel is not just for unbelievers, is it? It's for all of us. It's not just for the start of the Christian life, it's also for the middle and for the end. You never move on from the gospel. You never graduate from the gospel. You never advance beyond the gospel. You never leave it behind. It's by the gospel you're being saved. So if we're going to hold out the gospel of hope to our unsaved friends and family and workmates and neighbours, if we're going to help each other apply the gospel in our lives, we need more than a gospel tract, don't we? We need that gospel to take deep roots in our lives. We need to help each other work out how it applies to every aspect, every sphere of our lives. When I finished school uh, in 1994, I went on an exchange uh, to Germany for a year uh, and being the foolish young man that I was, I thought I could learn enough German on the plane on the way over there. <laughs> and so I got out my phrase book <laughs> and on the plane I managed to learn a ja or nine and I was five dry and I could count to ten and that was about it. Uh, the first few weeks there, I was I could order pizza as well. That was the other thing. <laughs> first few weeks there, I had a six-year-old host brother. I was staying with a host family. He was teaching me all the basics of, of how to speak in German. It was a humbling experience. And I learned a few phrases from my phrase book. And every night after dinner, I'd say to my host mother, who'd cooked a lovely dinner, I'd, uh, she'd say, would you like some more? And I'd say, nein danke, ich bin voll. No, no thanks, I'm full. And I said this every night, for two weeks, for three weeks, for four weeks. Until finally my host father, her husband, took me aside one night and said, you really should be saying, nein danke, ich bin satt. No thanks, I'm satisfied. I said, oh sure, I can change that, no problem. He said, it's just when you say, nein danke, ich bin voll, what you're saying is, no thanks, I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you see, there's a big difference between knowing a few phrases and being fluent in a language. How fluent are you in the gospel? You see, holding out the gospel of hope means more than just being ready to take someone through a two-ways-to-live track or whatever it is, as good as that is. That's a great start. But I want to encourage you as a church community to keep working at becoming fluent in the gospel. I want to encourage you to study the scriptures and help each other work out what does the gospel mean for how you spend your money and how you raise your kids and how you vote, and how you relate to your spouse, and how you do your study, and how you do your work, about what the gospel means for politics and environmental concern and gay marriage and singleness and divorce and the whole scope of life. Because when you do that, you'll be in a much better position to hold out the gospel of life to workmates and friends and colleagues and others who don't yet know Jesus because you'll be able to show them how the news of Jesus' death and resurrection is good news for them where they are. You'll be able to connect the gospel to the things in their life which they experience day to day. And when you do that, you'll also be able to sit down with Dave, the young bloke I mentioned at the start, who's struggling with homosexual desires, who's ridden with guilt and shame, and who wants to know what God thinks of him, and you'll be able to show him that Jesus' death on the cross washes him clean from all of his sins, and that Jesus' resurrection opens up a new way of life 
on the other side of sin, that there is hope of salvation for him. More than anything, that's what Dave needs to hear. And you'll be able to have a coffee with Phil as he works through being abandoned by his wife for 25 years and you'll be able to help him see how the Gospel shows us that in Jesus, God knows that kind of betrayal and brokenness. In Jesus, God has been there and experienced that. That Phil's not alone in his pain and that even at his late stage in life, even after his divorce, God hasn't given up on him but wants to work in his life to make him like Jesus, to save him from the ongoing effects of sin in his character and in his, in his relationships, you'll be able to show him that he doesn't have to work all the time to prove himself because God freely accepts him in Jesus. That because of Christ's death and resurrection, there's hope of salvation for him. More than anything, that's what Phil needs to hear. And you're able to visit Judith in the nursing home as she nears the end of her life and faces her body breaking down and you'll be able to speak to her of Jesus' broken body and also the power of his resurrection and assure her of the hope that is hers in Jesus, of new life, resurrection life on the other side of the grave and so comfort her in her doubt and in her fear more than anything That's what Judith needs to hear. It's what we all need to hear. It's the gospel. (coughs) So brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that you have received and on which you've taken your stand and by which you're being saved if you hold firmly to the word that was preached to you. The gospel of Jesus' death and burial, his resurrection and appearance. Hold on to it. Hold fast to it and hold it out to each other and to others who don't yet know him. Because that's the gospel which gives us hope of salvation. And pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your wonderful grace to us in Jesus. That even though because of our sin we deserve nothing but your wrath and condemnation, in Jesus' death, You have dealt with the penalty that we deserve for our sins and that in his resurrection you have opened up the way for new life. And so we pray, Father, that you would make us people who hold on to that gospel, who put down roots deeply in it, who let it shape our vision for every part of our lives (coughs) and who hold it out to others as the gospel which brings hope of salvation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.